I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. My guest on this episode of The Sound of Success is Emily Haynes. Emily is the lead singer, keyboardist, and songwriter of the band Metric, and also a member of the musical collective Broken Social Scene. She's also released solo work and albums with her side project, Emily Haynes and the Soft Skeleton. Emily, so good to catch up with you. Very good to talk to you again. Just a heads up for our listeners, we've actually met a few times uh, over the years. I remember playing metric demos on my old radio show at KCRW in Los Angeles, and I don't want to date either of us, but when would that have been? Well, it's okay because that's exactly the moment we're in. It was um, around 2003, and we're celebrating the 20-year anniversary of Old World Underground. So the demo you played was Combat Baby. I believe, right? So this is we're we're in it. And I, I, I think I had it perfect. on a CD. It was it was it was a handwritten thing, and I remember. Oh, I know you it. did. That was my handwriting. Yeah, for it sure. was. It's probably still in their library there, but I remember seeing it and being like, "I'm playing that on the radio right wow, away." Amazing. Um, it changed we... a lot for us. Yeah, it did a lot. It was a big moment. I remember it was like it's on the radio because we listened to KCRW all the time, as every band in LA did at the time, and yeah. Uh, it was just inconceivable that we were in there and it was you playing it. Very big moment for us. Well, I'm so happy to have been a part of that story in the early days for you. You came on and performed on that show. And then we also had you on the DirecTV Guitar Center Sessions show that I hosted. But then we hadn't seen each other for a while. And then I bumped into you backstage during your sound check earlier on this year at the Garbage and Noel Gallagher tour that Metric were on as you rolled through Los Angeles. And I literally grabbed you on your way to the stage and said, Hey, would you do this podcast? And here we are a couple of months later. Here we are. I love it. By the way, at the time of this conversation, late September 2023, Metric's new album, Formentera 2, is set for release in a couple of weeks on October 13th. But before we get into that and talk about the music questions, maybe we could skip back a few years. I know you grew up in a, a very musical and creative household. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? What kind of kid were you? So the household, deeply avant-garde reality that I really didn't understand until much later, which I think is true for all of us. Part of growing up is you come to realize how you grew up, you know, for the first part of your life, you're just in it. And then with some perspective, it's like, oh, that explains so much. So my father was a poet, a very, very out there writer, very avant-garde. A lot of people said they never understood what he was saying, let alone his writing. I really clicked with him. We were very close. And in fact, he passed away the day that we finished uh, our first album, Old World Underground. So this year is a big, big year, 20 year anniversary of that record and also 20 year anniversary of losing Paul. Um, he was also a teacher, a French teacher. So he was always up early in the morning, you know, playing like either Vivaldi really loud or Dayglo abortions really loud. We would get ready for school together. A very broad spectrum of wild music, lots of Frank Zappa, um, lots of really out there like Albert Eiler stuff. Um, my mom, uh, also a teacher, painter. They met in New York City. They were part of the New York scene and then had my brother there, had my sister in New Mexico and had me in New Delhi uh, and then moved to Canada, deep rural Canada um, when I was just two, three years old. And then I grew up here. Now, I, I know he worked with Carla Blay as well, right, who I actually met a few times when I was living in, in Woodstock. And I know that you have cited her as one of your, your influences. 
hearing that music that your dad was was making with her when you were a kid, can you remember how it made you feel? Yeah, that's a good example of what I've come to realize looking back of what was perhaps unique about my upbringing is I just thought the way that Carla Bley conducted herself in the world as an artist and as a human being was just what you did. Um, started her own label. Uh, she studied at Berkeley, but so she 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 had this ability, incredible ability for her arrangements, which I still can recognize um, in lots of people play her music and I hear it when I'm in, in New York and I hear people who've worked with her hear it, the sound of her arrangements, saying, you know, sort of as an afterthought and never wanted to be lumped in any kind of women in music group. She always wanted to be her own person and also had the best bangs in the industry. Um, incredible <laughs> fortitude of that blonde, yeah. those blonde bangs. Uh, so I just grew up feeling like, yeah, that's just what you do. You pair up with a totally eccentric poet like my father, who was writing those lyrics in New Delhi when they had me. Um, and you just go about your business. And only really recently have I come to understand the profound effect she had just in the adventurousness of her music and the matter of factness of how, you know, it's like, yeah, you just make this double album and you bring in all these, you bring in John Chikai and you bring in, you know, Linda Ronstadt, you bring in all this like incredible spectrum of music. And that's just how you roll. Um, and lately, I'm, I, with every passing day, come to realize how unique and incredible a uh, person she is. Yeah. Was it inevitable that you would become a writer? I think so. Yeah. I mean, my connection to the piano is really immediate. And my dad's um, love of language and his sort of, you know, life's purpose, it seemed, was to clarify nuance but in a very unpretentious way, like he didn't, he never wanted to call it poetry. It wasn't this ornate thing to be enjoyed. <laughs> it was like this incisive um, discovery to be handled. That's how I felt writing was supposed to be. So I, I tame it down quite a bit for metric, but at some point I may, uh, I may unleash my own Paul Haynes on the world. Right. I can't, I can't wait for that. I want to talk a little bit about, about going to school and uh, drama was a, a part of your life. I know you met Amy Milan, who I've known for a few years as well, of yeah. stars and broken social scene, along with Kevin Drew, also a broken social scene. Uh, and you and Amy formed your first band together. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. When we were 15, uh, we had a little thing called Edith's Mission and um, yeah, I just feel, I think so fondly of that school. It was just you know, for a lot of people, that age is so hard. And I was just struggling. I was so lost. And I just literally was lost walking down the hallway on the first day of school in the 11th grade, moving to the city. And that's when I met Amy with her flute. And we're still best friends. So uh, it's deep. <laughs> she has one of the purest voices I've ever heard. Every time I know. she sings, I'm just gobsmacked. Yeah, I know. She's a gem. What about college? What about um, university? I know you did both Canadian coasts, right? You were in Vancouver yeah. for a while and in Montreal for a while. What did you study? Um, I st actually was in a really cool program at UBC that was a, like, uh, it was a very special program that was about, that framed a conventional education in um, sort of a BA sort of type of education into the context of First Nations lands rights. 
And uh, I'm struggling because it was so special that this woman, Leslie Pender, who is the teacher, uh, was a lawyer. And we were participating in the beginnings of the idea that you would take the oral history from the people, the First Nations people of this country as proof of their presence. So it was like correlating storytelling to um, natural events, like historic natural events and learning the depth of the process that their storytelling involved, which is, I mean, if you have a minute to talk about this, I'm really fascinated by this because, Please. you know, when, when, we, when we say something is history, for us, it has to have been written down, right? And then we, if you actually start to dig into your um, sort of assumptions about like, well, that's factual history versus something else that you might think is hearsay, it's it's uh, pretty quickly falls apart when you look at the cultural bias toward that medium. And also, you of course, history is written by the victors. So when you, it was fascinating because there's the patterns of storytelling, which are very strict, that are the same way that you'd have a system for editing what ends up getting, you know, put on a piece of paper. The same thing applies to this oral history that gets passed on in this very specific way that is the same thing as a document. So the argument that this legal team was making at the time, and this was early 90s, was trying to use that as a basis for the claims that were being made by First Nations Native people in Canada. So it was cool. And, the, and it was basically like you got all your credits, your conventional credits, um, both like of a bachelor's degree, but it was all framed in this context. It was a very small class taught by this amazing woman. Leslie Pinder. So I left there and went to Concordia to study electro, uh, electroacoustics, which was really fun. My first exposure to, you know, modular synthesis, and like the wall sized synthesis that now is Jamie's domain, because I kind of, uh, I, I fell so far into just the songwriting as my main obsession and that's his jam now, but which led me to the pro one being my instrument. Yeah. So yeah, Vancouver and Montreal. You mentioned Jimmy and uh, obviously your life changed, his life changed when, when you guys met. Um, tell us a little bit about, about how you met and how you started working together. Oh, it's just the best. So I finished school. I think I maybe had one year left uh, in Montreal at Concordia, but I was back in Toronto for the summer or something kicking around. And I was I was trying to do some early preliminary recordings on my own and there was this uh, really great bass player, um, cello player named Joe Phillips, who was playing on some of my recordings and he invited me to come down to one of his shows. And he was also friends with Jimmy Shaw, who was back from Juilliard. Very different scale, right? Classical mm. trumpet, Hoity you know, to yeah. right? Total, total diva. Um, <laughs> not at all. But uh, he was also back. He, he had actually graduated, so he was back properly. Um, and we just hit it off at the most classic, anyone of your listeners who knows Toronto, of all places to meet, it couldn't be more classic. We met at the Horseshoe Tavern um, on Queen Street, which is just, you know, it's an establishment. It's something where like, even though, I don't know, the bartenders don't age. It's really weird. Like, it's just a timed capsule. Um, and they were, you know, I, I could go back there today and they'd be like, Emily, what's up? I'd be like, how are you still here? And uh, just so, so much history. And just leaning on the pool table and basically just exchanging our absolute dismay at all things 
industry um, style, you know, we were like, we got we got stuff to do and we're going to do it together. And off we off we went. Uh, we talked about the fact that it's 20 years since the first album, Old World Underground, Where Are You Now, was was released. Happy birthday, by the way. Thank you. When you look back some eight albums later, a lot of water under the bridge, um, personally, because we all experience lots of changes as we evolve in our lives. And of course, musically and, and as a writer, how do you see that time? How do you see the songs? How do you see the music? Uh, from those days that, that made it onto that album? I mean, it's astonishing the continuity that I feel and the timing of our conversation is so good because I know we've been trying to get together here for a while to chat and it's so good because I just wrapped um, rehearsals for these very special concerts we're doing. We're going back to the Bowery Ballroom in New York. We're going to the Roxy in LA and we're going to the concert hall in Toronto and uh, the Masonic Temple, like very, very small early days venues and you know for the anniversary to celebrate we're playing music from the new record and we're playing old world and to be with my three homies of 20 years Mm. and play those songs nick it was like i I, first of all i can't understand how my voice embodies it's like it sculpted around those words and those tones like there's no there's no reaching it's just like as though they're stored in my anatomy, you know? And musicians talk all the time about muscle memory, which to me makes more sense with piano stuff. And now I was a little bit more rusty of being like, oh man, how does this Hustle Rose line go, you know? Right. Not the pro one part, but the piano part. <laughs> but, uh, but my voice, I just was like locked in. And then, and the sense of myself of, you know, I'm so different in so many ways. I'm much mellower as you, I think we all are with time mostly hopefully i'm um, still waiting yeah i mean it depends how scrappy you started out that's true so you know <laughs> but i i feel like i'm still the right amount I, i'm a good amount of scrappy like i'm not completely out but you know i re- i recognize that that time i was just i had i had a fight and i had it in me and that's cool but was very surprised to feel like when i sing so sexy i i don't it's not like oh let me try to get there it's like all there and the guys um had a similar sensation they just were like my god it's in my body it's been in my body this whole time so it was really cool to play these songs again and then also just be able to give them a little bit of love sonically because we had so little even though michael andrews producing the record i think did a great job of like trying to capture the spirit of who we were and it's some pretty sweet pretty sweet gear but you know to be able to bring those songs up to the level of what a metric concert is now um, so yeah, I'm this conversation and the fact that it's you and me and it goes back to you playing combat baby. And, you know, I'm, this is, I'm right there. It's, it's deep. So I, yeah, I feel like time is a construct. I've, I've been really looking forward to talking to you yeah. for, uh, for the same reason. Yeah. You know, if you, if you stick around long enough in any gig, I think, I, you know, I always say when people ask me like, wow, you've been doing this a long time. How, how'd you manage to do that? I, say, I stayed alive. If you can stick around, uh, you meet people along the way 
and they sort of cycle in and out of your life. And for me as a host, somebody who's interviewed people and, you know, been somebody who's been influential in helping expose people's music, when it comes back around and I see people from 20 years ago, it makes me feel like a part of my life is also being completed. These cycles just sort of complete us, I think. So this moment is really special. So I'm, I'm so glad we're doing it. Thank you. What were you writing about 20 years ago? And what are you writing about today? I was writing about people being full of shit. And I was writing about war. And I was writing about um, like sacrifice, like calculation theme from Old World Underground, you know, it's very much the the reality of like, you know, Jimmy and I were together when we first met, right? We were a couple. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're now just like, our joke is like marriage was too too small a commitment for us. You know, it's just like, no, 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 no. We're talking real commitment, you know, um, not a physical relationship, but it's such a deep love and so very confusing to navigate that. You know, you speak of cycling through and seeing who's still around, like for Jimmy and I to figure out how to glean the fact that that love is so deep and so profound, but not physical. And I feel like if we were the same gender, it never would have even come up. And we just like Lennon McCartney got stuff and off we go, you know? Yeah. Um, and we, we couldn't because we couldn't. So like that song calculation theme, you know, who put these bodies between us? It was just, it was so real and so hard because we were both didn't want to give up what we had and we knew we were supposed to do it together, but the confusion of, of that. Um, so I was writing about that as well. As a band, you came of age in the first decade of the 2000s, which was an extremely fertile time for new and independent music. Uh, as we just alluded to, I was smack in the middle of it as well. But it was also probably the last decade of significant music sales, the last decade of um, physical music sales. You were very successful. You sold a lot of records. How has the world changed for you as, as now a legacy band? And, and I mean that in a, a kind way, obviously, a band that's been around, you've got a substantial body of work. How, is, how has that shifted for you making music today? Well, it's sort of this uh, long-awaited payoff because we had a really rough time at the beginning. Um, you know, Jimmy and I right, described the story of us meeting in Toronto, and then we pretty much immediately, you know, as quickly as we could, we moved to New York. Uh, Jimmy found this loft at Williamsburg, which was not anything at the time, it was 1998. Uh, certainly it was something I should, I should qualify that saying it wasn't what it is now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so no Chase Manhattan Bank Mall. Um, right. Pre everybody in the neighborhood wearing beards. Right. It was, it was very out there and to the point that you'd have to, when I we was waiting tables on St. Mark's, uh, which I talked about in a song on the new album, actually, and who would you be for me? I would, you'd have to get in the cab and get them to start the meter before you said you were going to Williamsburg or they wouldn't take you over the bridge. So it was just to frame it for your listeners of like, it was, it was like a foreign place that felt very hard to um, access and lacking in, shall we say, amenities. Uh, but Jimmy, he found this huge loft. He drove the landlord's dad to dentist appointments and did all these things to get the place. And one of the first people that showed up once he got it, you know, he needs to get all these roommates was Nick Sinner from the AES. A bunch of other artists lived there as well. Jaleel from TV on the radio, guys from Liars and 
our friends in stars lived there. Yep. So it was this, it was this hub. And around 2000, we got a call from a manager in London saying, come to England. Oh my God, you're going to get signed. You're going to be a star. Don't even play a show. We've heard your demos. Get over here. You know, because Jimmy and I were doing all our home recordings. Go to London. You know, it all kind of blows up. We do a publishing deal. Cool. But the, the record label thing just doesn't come together. Andy Ross tries to sign us to food records. EMI pulls the funding. You know, it was just right at the moment that it was all kind of collapsing. Yeah, You know, we just moved into Shoreditch, which had just doubled in rents. It was the same kind of thing that was happening in Williamsburg. We were like right on this tide, you know, and we were like, damn, we can't, we got it. This isn't happening. We got to leave. So we had to come back to New York, tail between our legs, go get our jobs back. You know, um, luckily we didn't leave on a high horse. Yeah. And the, the great thing about it is what we came back to was what was happening in New York, mm. which was Nick and Karen, you know, going to see them at Black Betty when they were doing Unitar, just the two of them. But yeah, yeah, is being amazing. Obviously, Interpol, LCD studio is right around the corner, you know, going to Virgin Records and buying the Strokes record, you know, like it was. It was a great time. It was a great time. And it was the perfect thing for two people like Jimmy and I, who were super disillusioned with the music industry. And we'd already been kind of, scrappy about it because we wanted to do our own recordings which it just seems so unfathomable now but you know what i'm talking about where like if you did a demo deal or something they would they would only book you studio time like they wouldn't they wouldn't pay for you to get any gear they wouldn't support you developing that and that was jimmy's dream and i was on board for jimmy's dream i was like i want to write songs and he wants to produce and that's what we're going to do so we came back with like super burned and scarred by this like demo record label process and also just the concept that it was like oh okay so you discover us early enough that everything we do you say you can claim that you've influenced it and then you own everything and like this is just a bummer so to come back to that music and all these people making being in a band look great the one thing we hadn't been able to do because we were being persuaded to be like recording artists we were like this is what we're here to do we need to find our band. We did. We found Josh and Jules. And then, you know, it was a long, hard struggle because we'd made that an album, which was Grow Up and Blow Away, that got shelved. We had to start completely from scratch. We had no money. And we came out to LA, you know, post-September 11th. We were like, we got to just, at least it's warmer here. I don't know. All of us crammed into an apartment, you know, and got our, got our gig at the Silver Lake Lounge. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, this is all answering your question, which because of because of the way that things started for us, which was really it was tough because then we watched all those bands, you know, they all got major label deals. They all got that sort of bump and that push and that break. We never, you know, we churned down those deals because we were limping and had PTSD, uh, you know, but the benefit to us is that cut to this moment when it's a completely new landscape for music and how people enjoy it. And Metric owns all of our own records. So it, it puts you in a different position. It, it makes all of that worth it, that we did like license deals with independent labels, you know, the working with Everloving, working with Mike, working with Last Gang, all these things like that ended up meaning that we are in a position now that we can benefit from the way that people listen to music as opposed to being locked in. So it's it's it was hard. <laughs> yeah, but, it was but worth it. 
<laughs> but you'd already done the work. Like it's, it's yeah. coming back to how it was at the beginning in, in, in some way because you're independent. But what I love is that you just told me that you own all your stuff because that's everything, isn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. And again, being around this for, for a while, I've, I wish I could tell you that the story you told me I hadn't heard before, but I have heard versions yeah. of that story, obviously. Uh, people thinking, oh, it's the moment they want us and then recording and then, no, you don't actually own that. A couple of people I know personally who, who've experienced that. I'll tell you, there are times when I'm at home and I'm watching TV with my partner and I hear a song from maybe that time on, on a commercial or in a movie or whatever it is. And, and, and we all know that's a significant source of income for, for bands, um, licensing and placements and all that kind of stuff. And I always turn around and say, God, I hope they own the publishing because that's your legacy, isn't it? You know, wow. owning your, your own material, it's yours to do with. And you don't have to worry about somebody putting it in a commercial for something that you don't agree with. I'm so happy to hear that you have everything. Yeah, and it's also like the the thing that we feel all the time is like there's no there's no chip on our shoulder, you know? Like it's been a wild ride and where we've landed to me is is just incredibly fortunate. Like our good fortunate at coming back to New York and having access to that moment and, you know, rubbing shoulders with all this great music that was happening there like that's that's for all the things that were challenging. That was incredible and you know, having like Manny Cheval and, you know, Michael Andrews show up at the Silver Lake Lounge, which, you know, to me still, and yeah, the fold, remember that was the, uh, yeah. that was the promoter. It's still, I don't know why that hasn't turned into like a cool venue. I've lived in LA recently and I just, I, it's just no love, right? The, the venues in LA have been hurting for a while. Yeah. Um, I think the pandemic didn't do much to help. Yeah. That, the pandemic didn't help. Obviously. And- I think it's I think it's tough out there. I, I know people who own and, and run a couple of the venues and it's challenging. It's uh it's interesting, but you know, live music is coming back and uh I've even been out to see a few shows. I'm very careful about where I go these days still. But you mentioned that you're gonna be going out and I, I just do want to remind people if you're listening right now that we're recording this in September of twenty twenty three. The new album is coming out in October. I got two questions. First of all, you said that you were going to uh, tour the new material and the first album, right? So you're going to play those, are you just going to mix the songs up or you're going to play one album and then the new material? How, how are you going to perform that? Well, yeah, I mean, you're obviously going to be there. So, okay, well, second the, question. <laughs> I, I was going to say to you, so presumably you're going to hook me up for the Roxy. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. But but when when will those shows be again, dear listener, in the context of when we're actually recording this? Uh, yeah, so we're doing uh, New York on the 10th of October, mm. uh, L.A. on the 12th, and Toronto on the 14th. So it's the release week um, that we're going to be revisiting our three hometowns. Right. Yeah, and then Jimmy and I go on to London, Paris, Berlin, where we're going to do intimate concerts, just the two of us, as well, like a little fireside chat vibes. So. Oh, that sounds horrible. <laughs> It'd be so fun. Let's jump into the into the music questions. Okay, yeah, awesome. So, what is your first musical memory? Okay, I can't be the only one of your guests who maybe has a hybrid. Um, we could also do a whole separate conversation on childhood memory, like where does it begin? Um, how much of it is from a photograph that you look at and think it's your first memory? But 
for me, it's sort of these three things in one. I hope I, I hope this is allowed within the parameters oh, I don't know about of that. the podcast. Yeah, okay. Please. All right. So vivid. My father made and was famous in his very small circle of like-minded weirdos, these legendary mixtapes. So he had a wall of tapes. He also had a reel-to-reel player, which was very exciting, where he'd record stuff from the radio from all his travels um, through India and elsewhere. But I have a vivid, vivid memory of sitting on a shaggy carpet and building houses and like sky rises out of the um, clear plastic cassette cases mm-hmm. while my dad typed and wrote. And it's one of the warmest, best memories of my childhood merged with being at the piano as a young kid. Um, really remember, I think my mom got it from a church basement or something. And, you know, not a fancy piano, just like a sort of stately wooden big beast that I felt like was an elephant. And I would go and I still have the same sort of modest um, approach when I approach a piano based on that feeling of the idea that it's sort of the song is in there and I just have to quietly sit with the with the elephant. (laughs) So I remember doing that and it being very early writing, you know, a song about the tree in the backyard and being like, this is a world, this is where I need to be. And really never straying from that um, since. And the third is my brother bringing me into his room to play records, which is kind of key because my dad's stuff was so weird, but my brother's stuff was so cool and how I found, you know, Lou Reed and Velvet Underground and all that good stuff. And him being so meticulous about how you care for a vinyl record mm. uh, to the point now that I just, I get kind of anxious when people behave certain ways around turntables. I have to kind of look away, it, you know, like just the handling of it. And I know, you know, it's a, it's a bit upsetting for me that people don't really listen to vinyl as much. They buy it and they keep it. It's okay. Um, but those three things I, re- I feel like were my earliest musical memory. I love that you combine them all. <laughs> what was the first music you bought yourself with your own money? Um, so I was trying to I was trying to think back, but I, I feel like it had to be it was definitely a Michael Jackson record. So it was either off the wall or thriller. But it must if, if I had off the wall, it must have been off that was before. So it must have been that. But I did have the thriller poster with his eyes following me no matter where I went in the room, which I recall. What was it about Michael Jackson for you? Well, we'll never know, I guess, because that was such a different time in terms of scarcity. You know, it's like it's what there was. But I suppose I felt an option when it came to Madonna and Cindy Lauper, because I very strongly chose Cindy and connected with Cindy more. That sort of felt like an option. But I didn't with Michael Jackson. It was just sort of a de facto, like, obviously. And I really loved those records. Yeah, he was undeniable. Um <laughs> What about live music? What was the first concert you went to without adult supervision? So that would be Corey Hart um, okay. wearing his sunglasses at night. And I was really laughing looking back for, like when I was reading your questions. Like, um, I made a huge sign, like a really big, like, I love you, Corey Hart, like sparkly, big sign. And it was in the trunk of the car. And my mom dropped me off and then I lost my nerve. At the last minute. You didn't take it in. I didn't take it in to the yeah. show. I just screamed and cried instead. So I should, I could reach out to Corey Art and be like, hey, 
heads up, missed opportunity. It's actually it's actually one of my one of my favorite questions to ask because the answers are are all over the place. I I spoke to to Natalie Merchant uh, on the most recent episode, and uh, her first live concert was Styx. Oh wow! At the Buffalo Auditorium, not that far away from where you were. True. And mine, and I'm really this is really weird. Was Gary Glitter? Oh, congrats! We're not allowed to talk about him anymore because he's well, just, no. Yeah, not not a good guy. I didn't tell people for ages when all the stuff came out about him because I was really embarrassed. And I was like, no, it's okay, you know. On your memories, yeah. What do you listen to when you want to dance? Big uh, John Hopkins fan. And the sort of more intent, the better. I'm really fascinated by how electronic music can be such a spectrum. I mean, I suppose it's true of guitar music, but... The, the distance for me, and it's pretty instantaneous of like what I would find the most generic EDM that I would need to turn off because it would bum me out. The distance from that to, you know, the like modular synthesis and really amazing sounds of an artist like John Hopkins. It's just the fact that that's even vaguely the same genre is fascinating to me. Um, but yeah, the weird, those, those weird, stressful sounds. I just love it. And I feel like it channels what a lot of my anxiety, I particularly, there's one song, Open Eye Signal, that's, uh, I think it's on immunity. I feel like the sound is, is the closest thing to word for just expressing whatever I need to shake out. Highly recommend. Do you collect electronic instruments? Well, it's funny because I'm in a team, right? So it's, and we talk about this a lot, like when you have a friend group or a team, or in my case, a band, it's sort of like redundant, right? Like, I mean, no, because the collection that we have at Main Street, our studio, thanks to Jimmy, is just bonkers. And he can tell you the story of everything, you know, he meets people, he's, it's, it's a natural fascination for him to like be friends with the people he bought it from and, you know, He'll meet someone in Paris who knows that guy who bought that synth. And he, you know, it's just that part of the gearhead thing just never really, it's just, it's, it's being handled. Let's just put it that way. Right. It's, it's available if you need it. Exactly. So, you know, I, I feel that to be a good team member and bandmate, my, my uh, services and energies are better suited, you know, sort of obsessing over various vowel sounds, which is more more my collection. I'm collecting vowel sounds. Going back a little bit to an earlier part of the conversation when you're talking about vowel sounds and obviously your, your voice and how you, how you use your voice as an instrument, how has your voice shifted, do you think? How do you feel your voice has developed through the years of recording? Yeah, I, I feel in fact that it's through the years of warming, although the, the studio experience is definitely part of it too. They're very different crafts. But I, I mean, I, I don't feel like I'm like a great singer with like big air quotes. I feel like it's funny, actually, childhood thing. When I went to that art school, Tobacco School of the Arts, you know, I was accepted, obviously. Uh, but in the music class, the, this vocal teacher was like, you're not singing, you're speaking. I was like, I know. I was like, oh, wait, what? Sorry, what? That's bad? Wait, what? It's like, you know, the, you know who my idols are, right? Like, of course I'm speaking. You know, so I think that that um, my sort of allergy to like big, melismatic, grandiose, and particularly this like stylings expected of female vocalists, 
I've just always been like, hell no, I don't, I don't, I probably don't even have the ability, but I'll never know because I never tried. Although I did try to sing an Aretha Franklin high note. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's not, that's not in, that's never happening. Um, <laughs> in say a little prayer, I was like, I love this song. Maybe I'll, it's like, yeah, not in that key. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah. <laughs> maybe not. Uh, but yeah, generally, I just felt like everyone, and including in school, I just felt like everyone's being trained to sound like something that I was like, I, okay, we are completely at odds of why we're doing what we're doing. You know, it's sort of like the EDM to John Hopkins spread. I'm like, I don't, your reason for making music, it must be so different from mine because I don't want to sound pretty. I'm not trying to, ask, I'm trying to just tell you something and I'm trying to develop enough of an instrument to be able to express myself um, and ideally say something of value that makes you feel something. So I feel over the years, what has developed is way more just musculature and technique. Um, I feel like I have, and I mean, I listen back to old world, right? Like my voice is the same. My singing, my identity is the same in terms of tone, I feel, but I just, I just didn't, I was so afraid to like, be, I don't know. It's just a state of mind. Like I was afraid to be too strong or something, which I know is very paradoxical with everything I'm saying, but just like the spoken style of the singers that I admired, I didn't want to be over singing. And I think I, I think I was doing myself a disservice because you need the support of the air. And, you know, and then you go on tour with someone like Shirley Manson and it's like, wow, that is a voice. You know, she's got it all. It's the, her identity, her tone is all there. She's not doing anything generic. You can totally recognize her instantly, but she's got the power and the support. So I would say that's the, that's the biggest difference is now I, I'm like, you know, you should sing, you should really, whatever you got, you should, you should sing. And Cindy Lopper also, when I played with her, we sang, give me sympathy together at her benefit thing. She told me to sing from my pussy. And I think that was very important advice. Good advice. Very good advice. So um, I, I would say that's changed meeting Cindy Lauper. Going, it's going a little deeper than the diaphragm, but I get, I, I get exactly. the point. Exactly. See, see, I can say something like that to you on your show because I know you're not going to now make that like the headline of our conversation because you're not. No, we do actually a, take, we do actually take a clip for a promo and I was thinking, I'm kidding. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Chasing those eyeballs, chasing those ears. I'm so fat. Oh, yeah. The first interview I, I did ever was when I was in Woodstock. And I don't think you know this part of my story, and I won't bore you with the details. But when I first came to the States, I moved to Woodstock, New York in 1988. And that's when I got into radio. And the first ever interview I did was with Paul Buchanan from the Blue Nile. And the Blue Nile were in Bearsville Barn rehearsing for a tour. Um, and I was a huge fan of that first Blue Nile record. And fortunately, years later, got to put him on one of the benefit concerts that we did for KCRW. But I just sort of rocked up there. Somebody told me they were there and I just rocked up there and um, I walked in and found a guy who found a guy and I'm talking to, you know, the singer of the band. I said, hey, I work down the radio station down the road. Would you come and be on, on my show? I had a Saturday show. It's my first ever radio show. And he came down and uh, that was my first ever interview. And why am I telling you this? Because he said to me at the beginning of the interview, you don't do those gotcha questions, do you? And I was like, be honest with you, mate, I've never done this before, but I hear what you're saying to me. And I've tried to sort of live true to that. You know, 
Um, because what, what's the point? It's a testament. Yeah, the gotcha thing is a real bummer. You know, we record we recorded in, in Woodstock hilariously as part of that. You know, also on the topic of like it's it's cool to give the backstory, but you also want to keep it moving. You know, I understand. We don't bore anybody with our life stories, but like the Woodstock uh, experience for me was crazily one of the demo deals we did put us with Stephen Haig, who is the New Order producer who ha- had a studio I remember in Woodstock. Yeah. Yeah. And so that of all places, Jimmy and I are in London. We're like, you know, having so much smoke blown up our asses. I'm like, we're going to be this. We're going to be that. And it's all crumbling all around us. And the thing that we salvage is that we go back to New York, to Woodstock. And that's the one thing we get, which is soft rock star, yeah. um, which our friends were like mocked us merc- mercilessly and said it sounded like free falling. We were like, no, it doesn't. It does not. It, yeah. it was great. It was it was awesome. It was just another sort of funny detour. Back to this. Um, Here we are. That was a nice detour. Um, <laughs> what do you listen to when you're feeling sad? Well, the the one that hits the hardest for me is uh, Jack Teagarden. I don't know if you're familiar with his music. He was an unusual combination, like a jazz crooner guy who... No, I don't. Uh, uh, oh, so good. If I can introduce you to Jack Teagarden, this is like the best day. He played trombone instead of trumpet, which we normally, you know, associate with uh, Chet Baker. Oh, you're writing it down. Yeah, I am. Uh, this is great. So there's an album called Think Well of Me. Um, and on it is a song called Cottage for Sale. And it's the saddest song I've ever heard. Our little dream garden is withered away. Where you planted roses, the weeds seem to say a cottage for sale. Through every window, I see your face. But when I reach that window, it's just empty space. It's so, I could cry just think, just quoting you the line. There's also a just stunning rendition of Don't Smoke in Bed on that album as well. So, and it is compounded for me as, as that this is someone my father adored to the point that we had a portrait of Jack Teagarden over our dining room kitchen table, nothing fancy, our kitchen table, right. <laughs> which is an example of something later in life that I've been like, right, because I now have the portrait here um, by my piano. But it's like, right, it's sort of unusual to dine beneath the portrait of uh, Jack Teagarden. So. Well, I- I just Wikipedia'd uh, Weldon Leo Jack Teagarden, and I'll be uh, digging into that a little bit later on. Thank you. Great. If you could only hear one song for the rest of your life, what would it be? Are you familiar with the artist Robert Wyatt? Yes. So another sort of childhood connection. He and my dad met early years of life, early years of my life, I guess, but uh, they had a long-standing tape-sending friendship where my father would send him mixtapes and he would send these postcards, which I have still. And later on, um, again, when Jimmy and I were in London, I sent him my music and I would send him everything I was working on and he would send me back encouragement in the form of these amazing postcards. Uh, He has a song called Stay Tuned. It's one of his more recent songs, and uh, I think it's on the album Sleep, but I could be wrong, um, when he had Insomnia. But it's 
the the meaning of the song, the plot of the song, as I hear it, is it's a, it's someone who's gone saying, I'm particles in the air. You can't see me, but I'm here. Um, so it says, don't stop searching. Stay tuned. Stay like, stay receptive. Um, there's more to come. So I feel like if I, I'm assuming if it's the only song I could listen to for the rest of my life, I feel like I'm probably alone. I guess I could be in hell with a bunch of like EDM weirdos or whatever. I don't know. Record label executives. Totally, exactly. But uh, I picture it being like a way to stay tuned um, and tuned into different ways of thinking and perceptions. It's a beautiful song. All right. Um, The visual side has been uh, an important part of Metric's career as well, making videos. Do you have a favorite music video and, and why? Not of our own, right? Yeah, some, somebody, somebody else. Somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Because I've actually, it's a long-standing idea that someone should just steal. We've been wanting to do it, but go through all our videos and just completely rag them on ourselves as a band. It would be really, I think, entertaining viewing. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we don't get around to fit, if you're listening, come on, bands. It's a great idea. Um, yeah, next, next pandemic. Next pandemic, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I think that this Strokes video for Ode to the Met is an absolute masterpiece. Um, and painfully, I actually didn't think to make note of the name of the director, who obviously would be the one to attribute that to. But I just, uh, I don't know that I've ever, first of all, I think that song's um, brilliant. But uh, I actually learned how to play on a piano that unlike the Aretha Franklin Say a Little Prayer, I was able to sing. Thank you, Julian. But uh, it's just so uncanny how the video looks exactly like what was happening in my mind when I was listening. I listened to the song deeply to the point that I learned it. I really like got into it. And then it was just by happenstance. I don't even know why I, it wasn't on purpose, but I ended up seeing this video and being like, what the hell? This the way that it constantly zooms out, I mean, I don't shouldn't expect that you've seen it. It's a great video. It's a work of art. And unlike the jarring sensation you can have where a video takes you away from the song, I felt like it just deepened it and was it was kind of like the song itself. It's just profoundly disappointed and sad and also quite funny. Um, bravo. Do you have a recent musical discovery, and it doesn't have to be necessarily something new, but something that's new to you that you'd like to share with our listeners? I would, and she is relatively new. I just want to make sure that I don't um, screw up her name. Julia Jacqueline. She's from Australia. Yeah, I've heard of her. I, have you? Yeah, I yeah. heard this one song, Body. I guess it's just my life, and I guess it's just my body is the is where she arrives at the end of this incredible, very, I love the structure of this really evocative, lyrically beautiful, profound, um, unique composition. And the way that she lands the words and her voice, it's stunning to me and very exciting. And then I only recently discovered that she's actually working with Marcus in, uh, Montreal. She's working in Canada. Her band is Canadian. So maybe at some point I'll be able to, I don't know, bring her on tour or do something with her. But uh, really exciting 
songwriter, artist. Julia Jacqueline. Yeah. Is there a band or artist that you love personally, but you feel they never quite got the big break they should have gotten? I have to sort of prepare myself for this answer because I get very worked up about it. David Berman, who has left us to me, was such, it's hard for me not to say, is such an incredible voice, artist, thinker, who makes me, you know, understand. I, I feel the alignment of like, why make music? To me, I listen to so much stuff. I'm super open-minded. I have a good time. I like listening to all kinds of things. But a lot of times I'm like, I really don't know why you're making that. Like, I don't know what the urgency is or what the point is. And the point could be that it's just like, let's party, let's get laid. Like, it doesn't have to be, you know, deep. Mm. But a lot of stuff I'm like, I really don't know other than you're just trying to promote yourself. And I don't know why. But David Berman, it's like there's something he wants to say. So he's saying it. And it's, and what he's saying is so unique and profound and beautifully crafted and funny and cool the way he's saying it. And then I look, even after his death, you would think tragically, you know, there'd be some sort of recognition. The David Berman Forever playlist on Spotify has 388 followers. I just, I honestly like, it's like, don't cry on Nick Hargord's podcast, but it makes me feel very defeated in this world. It really does because, you know, I know he's, he, whatever, he struggled. It's, it's irrelevant in a way to the work. It makes me feel like I have a different agenda of like, why do something and what's fun and what's cool and what's valuable. It makes me very nervous that that could be so underappreciated. Um, I should probably stop talking about this now and quietly have a sip of water. Okay, you do that and I'll follow up on it. First of all, maybe we'll get another couple of listeners to that Spotify playlist now that you've mentioned it. That is part of why we asked the question to introduce our listeners to something perhaps they're, or an artist perhaps they're not aware of. And secondly, you know, making music with intention, I think, is kind of a lost art. I'm not saying people don't do it, but I, I do share the thought you were alluding to, which is there's a lot of music that gets made and no disrespect. I mean, anybody who can make music, anybody who can create whatever you do, just putting it out there, yay you, congratulations. But I do question what's the point in, in, in a lot of the stuff. And when, when you're able to sort of hear music that was written or with some kind of intention, it's, it's a different experience. So thanks for sharing that. Um, do you have a musical guilty pleasure? Okay, this is great. I love that this is a question because I did not know that my guilty pleasures were both from the same person. So what, what I was going to say, I was like, I've got to find the name of this artist who sings this theme from Flashdance. First when there's nothing, you know? So Keep it's going. Irene Cara. Yeah. <laughs> I went, uh, Irene Cara. Who did you know also did the theme song for Fame, the television yeah. show and movie that like 100% our school actually was like that? Like probably because we all grew up watching that show and we were like, let's just go do that, you know. Um, but it's the same artist. She's the master of, you know, motivational, you can do it, Mary Tyler Moore's, you know, beret, freeze frame kind of amazing atmosphere. I feel like I grew up as a kid born in the seventies. Yeah. You know, 
Um, and I, you know, it's funny because I have, feel like people get older. Everyone's so afraid of getting older. I'm, I'm just not. I think we got to have a little more confidence. Cool times. We were so lucky. It was awesome. Landlines, you know, I'm into it. Banks, you know, there was all kinds of cool stuff. Did you say banks? I did. <laughs> walking in, walking into banks, bank books, you know, and Irene Cara just telling you like, go on, go follow your dream, put on that leotard, you know, like the whole plot of Flashdance is the movie is also a guilty pleasure because I, I think it formed my brain. Like it's so custom made for me. Like, you know, the boyfriend can't give me what I want. Like the establishment boyfriend connection. So I don't want it. I have to earn it my own way. And also I'm welding, you know? <laughs> <laughs> don't give me a ride i'm riding my bike and i'm welding i'm just i i rewatched it recently and i was like okay that's it's literally my origin story of why you know just all, right. all the why so so irene cara so, yeah um, she is what a voice and obviously flash dance and fame i, I love the mm. fame tv show i remember watching that when i was much younger obviously jero the characters were so good. The yeah. dancer, Jerome. Yeah. So handsome. Yeah. The crush. Yeah. Yeah. They're all old people now, but that's... <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, but that's cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> like I said earlier on in the conversation, it's like, you know, if you manage to live through all the crap, you, you get yeah. to you get to enjoy being a little bit older, you know? Well, this is the thing I can't deal with, with the like crazy optimization madness. Like I'm into it. I'm super healthy. You know, I'm a fit bitch. I'm doing all the things. It's fine. But like, I can't get with this sort of constant, like, oh man, like we're here. It's crazy. I can't believe it. We're, I, you won't hear that from anyone in my band. Like yeah. we laugh because we just, we're just kind of can't believe it. But the whole thing of like being too insecure to just own your own references and be like, yeah, no, it was, yeah. The, the year that I'm singing about is the year that other people were born. It's okay. It's my, it was my time. What's the alternative? I don't know. Yeah. I'm uh I'm, I'm, I'm trying to push back a little on that. Like it's cool. Well, look, I mean, every day's a gift is the way I look at it, you know. And unfortunately you don't sort of recognize that until you're a little bit older. But again, if you stay stay alive long <laughs> stick enough. Stick around long enough. You should be able to enjoy it, I think. Totally. We're just about done. I've got one question left, and that is how are you feeling right now? I feel like an incredibly mystical, fortunate time traveler. I feel like I am a spirit in a body that is still letting me go and do my thing. And I feel really good. I feel really not like nervous because it's all real, you know, and uh, somehow we're still doing it. Like, some, you know how something's like, I don't know if you ever had this sensation, but sometimes I feel like, you know, the feeling where you're like you're spending real money and someone's spending fake money or like you're you're paying in blood and someone else is paying in water or there's some sort of way to get around it. And I just feel totally all in with my relationships and my band and our business and our little independent company trying to like stay on the road and keep making records and, and stick with this dream that we're going to get better and better and better. Um, so I'm fired up but I'm scared. There's always got to be a little bit of fear. A little scared. Well, yeah, yeah. Then, then that's how you know you're having a good time. Yeah. A little terror. 
It's great talking with you. Thanks so much for uh, for taking a minute to, so fun. to be on the podcast. And um, I guess I'll see you in LA in a couple of weeks. Nick, you're on the guest list. Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.